Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are talking about the film Pig from 2021. This movie was directed by Michael Sarnaski. It was also written by him uh, from a story by himself, Michael Sarnaski, and uh, <laughs> Vanessa Block. And this is an episode that was commissioned by one of our really generous and really awesome Patreon supporters. And I just want to say thank you so much for that commission. This is only the third movie that we have covered anywhere on the network, and two of those three now have been uh, commissioned. The other one was voted on by Patreon supporters. And as I know that I have said on those other episodes, I am not someone who really cares all that much about movies. I don't watch them very often. I mean, I did when I was a kid. That's why there's like 10 movies I make jokes about all the time. But I don't watch new movies very often. I don't pay attention to what movies are, are out or are, are coming out. That was definitely the case here. Uh, without this commission, I would have had no idea that this movie even existed, let alone have taken the time to watch it. But wow, I am so glad that I did. I'm really in awe of this film, and so I'm very grateful to have this commission. Yeah, uh, unlike you, Glenn, movies are one of my favorite things in the whole world. So I had a great time. I'd been aware of this movie for a while since it came out, uh, since it looked like a return to, um, I don't know, more serious performance by Nicolas Cage, which is always a, a pleasure to watch, I think, and is absolutely the case in this movie. So I've been wanting to watch this movie since it came out, haven't really had the opportunity. This gave me the opportunity to watch this movie. I'm so grateful for that. I think we both really enjoyed this movie, maybe for different reasons. I think we can agree that the visuals were great. And uh, Nicolas Cage recently did an Ask Me Anything, uh, an AMA on Reddit. And he said this was in the top three favorite films of his that he's made and performed in. Um, so we should talk about it. We should talk about what the plot of this movie is. And, uh, then we're going to talk about our experience watching it. Yeah. I'm just going to give the, the briefest synopsis that I can though. Just the first thing maybe to say up front is that there is a lot of plot in this movie. It's kind of a quest narrative. So there are a lot of beats. Uh, it's a little bit different than some of the other movies that we have, uh, we have talked about here. So, uh, I'll do my best to keep this brief. Part one, rustic mushroom tart. Meet Rob. Rob is 55 or so, and he lives in a cabin in the wilderness outside of Portland, Oregon. Now, I say alone, but in fact, he lives with his pig. She is a truffle pig, and that is what Rob does. He finds truffles and sells them to a 20-something man named Amir, who then sells the truffles to high-end restaurants in Portland. Uh, again, I say sells here, but the one business transaction that we see is really more of a barter. Uh, Amir brings basic supplies to Rob. This includes D batteries so that he can play cassette tapes on his boombox. And we see, in fact, that he has a basket of these tapes. I mean, they're old school homemade tapes. And he tries to play one of them, one that is labeled For Robin. On the tape is a woman's voice, but we only get a second or two of this because that is all that Rob can take. And we're going to return to this at the end of the film. So all of that is really the setup. Let's actually get into the plot here. The inciting incident of the story is that that night, some people burst into Rob's cabin and they take the pig. And now he is on a quest to find her. 
Amir is going to be his ride, uh, eventually going to be his partner, on this quest that takes him into Portland and back into a life that he left behind 15 years ago. The trail in Portland starts with a man named Edgar who runs a mysterious and highly improbable fight club for restaurant workers that is both figuratively and literally underground. Uh, It's pretty awesome. But uh, Edgar is kind of a jerk, though after Rob lets himself get beaten up for money, Edgar does give Rob the next clue. And during this scene as well, Amir actually learns who Rob is. It turns out that he's Robin Feld, a legendary chef who just disappeared from the Portland restaurant scene 15 years ago. So now we're in part two, Mom's French Toast and Deconstructed Scallops. It's the next morning. We're at Amir's place before we follow up on the next clue. Before we do that, though, Amir tells Rob about his parents Now, they had a terrible relationship, but he remembers that one night they went out to dinner and they came home really happy together. And they used to talk about that night out and in particular about that meal for years, like it was the one thing that they had that was keeping them going. And that was a dinner they had at Rob's restaurant. Later, Amir's mother killed herself. And all of this is clearly very difficult for Amir. And in response to... Amir telling him this very private story, Rob says that we don't have to care about anything because soon there's going to be an earthquake and the city is going to be submerged and we're all going to die. Okay, so the clue that we left the first act on, this clue leads to a restaurant named Eurydice. Uh, That name is going to matter to the theme of the film. This restaurant is high-end and fancy, though it actually looked pretty terrible to me. I think it's supposed to. Uh, (laughs) Chef is someone who once worked as a prep cook for Rob, and he's terrible too. He is living a fake life, really, and just in... He's really just living a kind of fake life in order to make money. Rob calls him on this and then tells him that we don't get a lot of things to really care about, with the idea being, right, that uh, maybe you shouldn't waste your time on things that don't matter, things that you don't care about. But this chef knows who took the pig, and it turns out that it is actually Amir's father, who is also in this business, and in fact is Amir's business rival. Rob and Amir have a uh, falling out at this news. We get a bit of a montage here then, where Rob goes to confront Amir's father at his pretty swank home, while Amir goes to the hospital to visit his unconscious mother. Uh, because it turns out that he lied to Rob. His mother's not really dead. Uh, She clearly has tried to kill herself, but did not succeed in that. And she's been on life support for a long time. And Amir's father won't let her die. That's the way that Amir sees it anyway. At the father's house, uh, the father admits to taking the pig, and he's just going to pay Rob for it. But there is no way that he's going to give her back to him. Now, outside, Amir is back, and he wants to help. Uh, Rob admits that he doesn't really need the pig to find truffles, though he's actually been telling Amir otherwise in order to get his help. Really, he just wants to get the pig back because, well, the pig is his family. He loves her. And that's it. They're back on the quest together now, and Rob has a list of things that he wants Amir to go get while he takes care of something else. And this is the end of part two. So part three, a bird, a bottle, and a salted baguette. So now we learn what happened 15 years ago that drove Rob into the woods, at least in a a vague sense. 
His wife, Lori, died, and when he left, he left his restaurant to one of his employees who has now turned it into a bakery. Uh, She was the baker at their restaurant. Uh, This restaurant was named Hestia. That also is a name that will matter for the themes. And Rob has come to see her because he requires a loaf of salted baguette, uh, the type that she used to make at Hestia. And we also see that she took down the curtains, which is something that Rob's wife always wanted. Meanwhile, Amir has gone to the crematorium where Lori's remains are held because the caretaker there has Rob's wine collection and they need a special bottle of wine from it. So now they're back together and they sneak into the house of Amir's father and into the kitchen where they cook a meal. It is the meal that Amir told Rob about. It is the one last good thing that his parents shared together. And As he's eating this, uh, Amir's father gradually realizes what this meal is, you know, as his sense memory is activated. And he begins to cry, and he rushes from the dining room. In his study, he tries to stifle his feelings with liquor. It might be whiskey, but I suspect it's brandy, though I don't think that actually matters. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I just always think about it. But what does matter is that when Rob follows him, he now admits that, the pig is dead. The people who took her had injured her, and she died. Rob now just collapses in grief. And then we cut to the end of the film. Amir is taking Rob back to his cabin. Uh, They stop at a diner along the way where Rob says that he wishes that he hadn't gone looking for his pig because then, in his mind at least, she would still be alive. Just kidnapped, but, but not dead. He could go on pretending that she was okay somewhere. And so from here, Rob decides just to walk the rest of the way back to his cabin, and he and Amir shake hands, and Rob says that he'll see him on Thursday for the usual truffle delivery. And now it's the final scene, a a coda of sorts, really. Rob is back at his cabin. He picks up this cassette tape labeled for Robin, and now he can really play it. It's Lori, of course. We've learned who this is now. It's probably 25 or even 30 years ago when they were young. She wishes him happy birthday and then plays and sings a cover of the Bruce Springsteen song, I'm on Fire. And we listen to her sing this song as we see Rob prepare to go to bed, alone in his cabin, and she keeps singing as we go to the credits. And that's the film. I read on uh, IMDb's trivia page that over an hour of footage was cut from this movie. What it turned, what really is a a nearly perfect 90 minute movie into a two and a half hour film. And I, and I, and I wonder, you know, before we start thinking about ways to approach the storytelling in this movie, um, we're going to talk about this movie as a movie as well. Um, What you think that hour of footage could have been made up of? So I'm really interested to hear this because Elizabeth and I, you know, we watched this movie together. 90 minutes in a row is not something that I've I've got or two hours. You know, Elizabeth and I watch things on a screen together after Finch goes to bed in uh, 20 to 40 minute increments usually. But we we gave this a bigger go here. And as soon as we got the title card for part three, I paused it and said, I've got to go to bed. And uh, <laughs> then we watched it the next night. And I was surprised when there were only like 25 minutes left because I felt like we had just gotten to the halfway point. I, I would have actually, you know, toughed it out. I would have finished watching the movie in one go if I'd realized that there was only that much left. And so I think I had this internal sense that the movie was longer, actually, than it turned out to be. And so perhaps maybe that's the the the, the vaguest response I can give you, Brandon, is that it felt like the ending happened very quickly. And it felt like there should have been a little bit more to it. 
that's funny. So I did watch it in one go, which also surprised me because uh, this month I've been going to bed very early and I decided to stay up to <laughs> watch this movie. I poured myself a whiskey. It gave me a migraine, but not till after the credits rolled on the film, which I'm grateful for. But uh, to me, it felt perfectly paced. Um, you know, I didn't not cutting it up. And, and also I looked it up and knew it was 90 minutes. Uh, so I could give myself an expectation. I, I uh, My feeling then is that that extra hour would have been uh, more quest-like stuff. Like there would have been more things along the way. Uh, maybe we would have gotten um, a deeper sense of the weirdness of the world that Rob and Amir are traveling through. Uh, maybe there would have been more like weird apocalypse talk. Just some of the things that the movie flirts with may have been more developed, but I believe that uh, it would have been a mistake to keep all of that in and expound on it further. Because to me, the way the movie just drops some of these ideas and some of these hints at another world is uh, perfect. It's perfectly paced and, and beautifully edited. Yeah, I certainly didn't need another hour of it. Uh, and I don't mean to say that I wasn't enjoying this movie and 90 minutes was all I had. I, I'm agreeing with you, Brandon, that I think that it's actually perfectly cut. But you can see, I think, two places where three beats were intended that we didn't get. That The apocalyptic stuff is one of them. We get the one really big moments, perhaps a speech that we'll actually read verbatim into the microphone at some point during our conversation. And there's another sort of smaller beat of that. And it really felt like probably there was supposed to be a third one. And then even the title of part three has three elements in it. And we only actually see two of them, like the quest element of two of them on screen. It felt like probably we were supposed to see him go get the the hens as as well uh, and, and would have spoken to another restaurant person from his life, you know, 15 years ago. And we, we just, that scene was cut. Well, I, yeah, I think we'll have an opportunity to dig into all of this uh, stuff, all the stuff the movie's playing with by looking at what the movie is doing, I think, as uh, as uh, moving as a motion picture, right? But really as a story also as well. And before I get into this, I have like a couple really specific things in mind, three ways in to this story. Uh, but I wondered, Glenn, I know you're not into movies that much. You're not a big movie watcher like I am. But I wonder if while watching this movie, uh, you felt as though this movie was playing with any other uh, genres or trends beyond uh, it being a more or less straight type of drama. Well, it's certainly hard not to watch this uh, restaurant worker fight club and not think about fight club. I mean, it, I didn't go, I did not do my homework, but it even felt to me like some of that seeing the actual punching stuff was kind of shot for shot. Ed Norton beating somebody up is really what it felt like to me. Perhaps you actually have a better sense of that. That That's a great point. I, I, I do think that, you know, the cardboard on the ground, the idea of like, you know, service workers in particular needing to like let off steam or beat up a chef for some money. Uh, I think that does resonate with some of what's going on in Fight Club. But what th this movie really reminded me of more was John Wick. And I don't know if you've seen that. Um, I'll explain a, a little bit about what it's about in a moment. But, you know, this movie to me really felt like it was designed to be put into conversation with at least the first John Wick movie, particularly the way in which uh, Pig 
also, like John Wick, uh, flirts with portal fantasies and secret societies. You know, in this case, it's service workers and not international assassins. And so, you know, for our audience who may not know, and also you, Glenn, who may not know, uh, John Wick is a shoot 'em up action movie starring Keanu Reeves as like the world's greatest assassin of all time who is left the game, but he's brought back into it uh, because some idiot goons kill his dog and the dog that is left for him, particularly uh, given as a gift to him by his wife who has died of cancer. Uh, Now, John Wick and Pig are also are both light portal fantasies, um, but John Wick is mostly about shooting guns and loud car engine sounds. So I wonder, Glenn, given that explanation, not if you only see that this could be put in conversation with John Wick, but if you see the ways in which Pig uh, uses portal fantasy to conceive of the way it's trying to tell its story. Right. Well, it does just so happen that, uh, in fact, Finch and I are reading perhaps the mother of all portal fantasies together right now, which is to say the the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, this is a story that I think most of our audience, if not all of our audience, will be familiar with, <laughs> at least in some way. And in that story, right, the wardrobe is the portal. It's a, literally a portal from our world to another world. And so portal fantasy means any kind of fantasy story that is at least in part taking place in a fantastical world that you can get to from our mundane world. And that's not literally what is happening here. This this film is all ostensibly taking place in our actual world. But there is a portal, and that portal leads to something that is, I mean, I described it as improbable in the in the synopsis <laughs> uh, but is is fairly fantastical and it is the portal that you have to go through in order to get to this uh, underground fight club this is being held in the sub basement of the hotel portland which was torn down in the 50s but the sub basement was left intact and uh, a park was built over it and so at least one of the ways, it clearly can't be the only way, but one of the ways that you can get in here is through a hole in the wall behind some shelves in the storeroom in a restaurant. And for some reason, Rob knows where this is and and how to get there, right? And how to go through it. Uh, Amir does not know. And so Rob is acting kind of, or seeming to Amir at least, to be kind of crazy in his, his search for this door. And so that's a real symbolic use of the portal there, right? That you're going through this gate and then entering a world that is very different or feels very different, at least from the one that we've left behind, where now there are going to be some weird things happening. And we've entered a world that has this bizarre fight club for restaurant workers, but also has all this apocalyptic stuff. We don't get any of the apocalyptic speech making until we go through this portal. I think even the way that the movie is shot is meant to evoke the sense of uh, traveling from one between these worlds. The characters in the film, uh, particularly Rob, are constantly framed through door frames, which are portals, uh, often 
from the interior looking out at the character uh, who was making their way inside. And so not only does that serve to give us the sense that the coming through the door, like crossing the threshold is really important uh, for these characters as they continue their journey, but also you know, that they feel outside of all the stuff that's inside. So visually it works on a number of levels, but also because they're traveling through these weird worlds, even the restaurant scene where Robin dresses down that chef and just like eviscerates him is in a sense, this other world, the food is covered in, you know, fog and smoke. And you mentioned the place looked like a place, you know, neither of us would want to be. I think that's true. I think the design is that way. Um, But I think so much of the movie is beautifully shot uh, in such a way to get us to think about that constant crossing of the threshold. You know, there's one particular shot in the movie that I think overemphasized this <laughs> um, and so fell flat to me in, in some regard. And it's where Robin is leaving Adam Arkin's house, who was Amir's father for the first time after he's really dismissed and he has to think of a new way to rescue his pig. And you have Rob coming out of the house, but that shot is framed through um, this kind of circle of branches in the tree that's in front of the house. And so you have this this kind of real sense of uh, two maybe boundaries that Rob is going to have to cross, not to mention then these mythological references to Eurydice and, and Hestia. Yeah, the, the house of Amir's father in this film, boy, this made me wish I was rich. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I loved all of this the scenes that were, were filmed there. It was just a beautiful house. It did appear to be a real house in Portland. I didn't look anything up actually about the uh, filming of those scenes, if the interior really was the interior of what we get in the exterior, though that clearly is actually a real house in Portland, the exterior of it at any rate. But and it has this uh, Frank Lloyd Wright look to it and this beautiful tree just kind of right in front of the the front door that was just absolutely gorgeous. But I, I did really actually like that that shot. You said it kind of fell flat for you, though it, it was, you know, I guess pretty stylized and and which I think is often something that actually for you falls flat both in on, <laughs> on, on screen and in and in print but I actually really really liked what began that whole scene his arrival at the house uh, where we see that actually from the perspective of well I guess I was gonna say from the perspective of Amir's father who's inside the house but that's not really true it's just the camera is set up in the front stairwell looking down to the the entry hall of the foyer or foyer. You can hear that I'm from Chicago there. I just called it foyer. At least I didn't call it front room. I was trying you to You could have called it a vestibule there. if you really wanted, if you're from, really from Philly. And, uh, but, at, but at any rate, we see, we see Rob approaching through this uh, leaded glass. We see him approaching the door through the leaded glass and the door at the same time that we're actually getting uh, Amir's father descending the stairs. And so we're seeing both of them uh, kind of approaching each other, both approaching this threshold at the same time that I thought was pretty magnificent. It is really magnificent. And 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 the the reason why that shot fell flat to me because is because I was so uh, hyper attuned early on, even the earliest shot of the movie, is, uh, when we see Robin coming home from the river where he's washing his pan and he's going to make a delicious mushroom pizza, uh, I may, though maybe that's the mushroom tart. 
is shot from inside his house and we're watching him come from the woods and then the uh, tracking from through the windows in his house as he's coming from the woods and then coming into the interior of his house. And I said, okay, uh, first of all, the setup for this movie is the exact same as John Wick. Now we're looking at people crossing thresholds as kind of a visual motif. You know, this movie is absolutely playing with the way that John Wick is also a, a kind of really a portal fantasy, too. Um, and so from the start of the movie, I was like hyper attuned to the way characters are framed through thresholds and passing through them. And that one to me was just a, a slight bridge too far. It was a beautiful shot, but I think uh, in terms of the motif, it was too many levels, um, especially when that shot and that scene was intercut with a mirror s- refusing to cross or even um, uh, create a vision beyond the threshold visiting his mother in the hospital. And so uh, I just, to me, it just, it didn't quite work. It's such a stupid critique. I don't really have, I have one critique of this movie. This is not that I'm just saying if you're, (laughs) if you're watching the movie as intently as I was looking for the repetition of this visual motif, that one shot is just the core example of it. And it's because it's so emphasized in that shot. Well, there was there was one element of this visual motif that sucked me out of the film as well, and it is when he returns, he being Rob here, returns to the home that he lived in with Laurie and has actually a really touching scene with a four-year-old boy who is sitting on the, the back stoop of this house uh, playing some kind of a percussion instrument. And Rob sits down on the steps with him and they have a pleasant conversation about persimmon trees. And uh, all of that was really beautiful. I enjoyed that part of the scene. We see a lot of it from the kitchen uh, and so are looking at their backs out the back door as they are sitting on the stoop. And there was just so much going on for me in my response to the reality of this scene that one was like, why is this door just totally open? There's no (laughs) screen door here. Like, what about the mosquitoes? And then also, where this kid's parents like these were just as like a middle-aged you know stay-at-home dad that I, <laughs> I i could not suspend my disbelief for that scene but it's actually a beautiful scene the problems are me right it is a beautiful scene and that's what it so, so this is a, a really the first time film of uh for a debut film of michael cernowski i think we're going to come out on the side of saying he did an incredible job but maybe he overthought some shots that I, i'll just say that and and that's the, visually, the only critique I have of the movie. I think it's one of the most gorgeously shot movies I've seen uh, in a very long time. The Let's uh, think about another way this movie was conceptualized. Uh, at least something that really stood out to me uh, as I was watching it. And that is to think of this movie as the classic hero's journey. But this movie's about the wizard instead of the being primarily about the young boy, you know, whose father is some secret leader of the empire or kingdom. You know, I I, I think we've mostly talked about this off Mike Glenn, but I, I have a real problem with today's entertainment in that the majority of our cultural pop culture entertainment is really just a recycling of the hero's journey. And really, it's the origin story, the first heroic journey that our hero goes on that's often depicted as a young man's game. Even a film like Iron Man, who was like 
the wise one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is on a he's on a constant journey of maturation throughout those movies. And so what I'm saying here is we don't actually really get too many stories about wizards. And by wizard, I actually just mean a real adult who's ready to (laughs) seed the stage uh, of the world to the next generation about we don't get the stories about someone who knows the personal costs of that, of what preparing the stage for who and what comes next means, who knows when to bow out and who knows that living a quiet life, a simple life in the country, a life of flourishing is a good thing until they need to help guide that young boy who who hears or girl who hears the call adventure that first time and needs to be step into that mentorship role. And so I think that this movie appeals to an audience for whom that story is really familiar and overly familiar. But this story makes it strange, so I think it it feels really fresh in that regard. And so I think that this story this element of storytelling in our culture, the reliance on telling stories about youth coming into their power, but you know, aimed at an audience that is in their 30s to 50s is kind of a preoccupation of mine. Um, it might not be one of yours, Glenn, but I guess now I'm just wondering if I'm crazy to have approached the movie in this way, of it being a movie about a wizard, uh, and if you saw any of echoes in of that classic hero's journey in the plot while you watch the film, maybe another way to put this question is, you know, how is Nicolas Cage a wizard in this movie? Right. I mean, he is the the Ben Kenobi of of this movie. Right. He he's a hermit. He lives out in the the wilderness. You know, here the wilderness is not the the desert of Tatooine. It's the the woods of Oregon. But he is the old wise man, kind of mystical, kind of magical, with whom the young twenty something Amir has a relationship, and. Amir needs this type of relationship, right? Something that we learn about him right away is that he and his father have a terrible, terrible relationship. I mean, for one thing, Amir clearly blames his father for his mother's suicide attempt. And so he is someone who needs some kind of guidance about how to to navigate the world. And we see him looking for that. We see that actually in a number of ways. But one of the ways that's really, really clear is that Amir doesn't really know who he is and is simply trying to mimic the trappings of what he sees around him, right? The only thing he knows about what it is to be an adult in the world is to actually be like his father. So he's going into the same business the same industry that his father works in. He buys a a flashy car, though he doesn't really seem maybe to care to know about cars or to be all that interested in them. There's This is something even that Rob points out later in a kind of uh, double entendre of a line. But the biggest thing that we see here is that while driving his car, Amir is listening to courses on, on tape. I mean, I'm sure they're not literally on a cassette tape, though cassette tapes actually appearing in this film and fairly important to them. But at any rate, he's listening to a kind of audio education course. Uh, It's a musical education course that he's listening to. And presumably, Amir has been listening to lots of education courses, trying to take on a persona that perhaps is not natural to him because he hasn't had anywhere else to go for any kind of, of guidance about what it means to be an adult in this world. And he's been doing it wrong, or at least doing it in a way that's inauthentic to him 
And Rob, over the course of this movie, provides him with a much better blueprint for that. And Rob is explicitly doing that, actually, for so many other people that they encounter in the film, in particular, the chef at Eurydice, but we see it in some other ways as well. So to get back to your actual question, Brandon, I don't think that you're wrong at all to to see Rob as the kind of wizard in a hero's quest story in which Amir is the hero actually on you know the hero's journey, but that this story is not being told from his perspective. But I do think that you know at the end of this film, all three of our principal characters, Amir, Amir's father, and and Rob, have all gone on an emotional journey. They've had an emotional arc. Are leaving the film in a different place. And look, the film really is Rob's story. It begins and ends with him. It's his arc that we're emotionally invested in. Amir's father has some kind of emotional arc here as a serious emotional response to this meal. But I think that quietly, Amir is the person who is actually going to benefit the most from the events of this story. This movie, at least with regards to Amir's character, is explicitly about Amir learning to become empowered, how to navigate the world. He really is that. His character really is patterned on that naive provincial youth, even though like the trappings of his wealth are immediately evident to us as viewers. But we really get a sense of the way Amir operates in the world by himself, I think, in two scenes. One, when uh, Robin is confronting that service worker having a cigarette outside saying he needs to get into the kitchen so that he can find the portal to the underground fight club. And Amir is just hiding back, hanging back because he doesn't want to be recognized. He doesn't want to be associated with this crazy guy. Uh, he doesn't want people to recognize him. So he's kind of hiding a little bit. He's afraid of having to, as we learn later, reveal his actual work persona to Robin, who we learn that Amir really respects. And then when we see Amir's real work persona in the movie, when he's asking for one of the people he supplies to get reservations to Eurydice, he's weak. He stumbles over his words. He preps himself up, telling himself he's great, but he just sits there and barely is able to get what he wants from this person until he uses the powerful name of the wizard <laughs> to uh, to get what he wants, right? So I think that we see, yeah, Robin, we see that Amir really needs to mature and he needs that mentor ultimately to take on his father, the evil king. And so I think this movie is kind of consciously putting these archetypes in play, you know, and then Nicolas Cage is making magic dinners. He knows where the, tr the language of the trees that are going to show him the truffles. He knows the right words to say to uh, get this chef to tell him what he wants, which is, you know, such a great scene. He knows how to navigate. He knows the entrances into the underworld and he knows how to pay those costs to get in and out of it. So yeah, I think this movie is really not only designed to be put into conversation with John Wick, but is also consciously being put into conversation with a lot of popular entertainment uh, beyond John Wick to really get us to think about the roles and responsibilities of adulthood in, in particular ways. 
Yeah, he also has a, a photographic memory and an eidetic memory, at least for every <laughs> meal he's ever made and, and the people for whom he has made those meals and, and also everyone who has ever worked for him as well, which is a, a type of wizardry in itself. And I, th I think one other bit of wizardry that there is about Rob is that he is able to, I think, pierce you know, beyond the veil, pierce through the veil to see people as they really are. And... Uh, and let them know that he sees who they really are. And it's it's pretty eviscerating, at least for the uh, the head chef at Eurydice. Yeah, I think uh, that element of the movie is really trying to say something about um, life in nature versus life in kind of this industrial hellscape. I mean, we get this really hellish, you know, almost uh, uh, pandemonious montage of Rob and Amir driving into the city of Portland that really makes you, I guess, more of collage and overlays, which we see earlier in the movie, these overlaid shots of nature that are just beautiful, the way nature sort of complements itself. And when we see a repeat of that collage and montage as they're going into the city, it's really disorienting. And I don't think this movie develops this theme very well, but I think it's trying to comment on, you know, beyond Nick Cage's character being a wizard, um, the purity of nature, of the way he's living, and the simplicity of it, and how that's all he needs, versus all of this insane industry and backdrop of what it means to be in a in a city. No, absolutely, he's Conan. He does not have the, uh, the the hypocritical trappings of civilization because he's a barbarian who lives out in the wild and uh, doesn't have any need for lies. He only needs to speak the truth. That's all that he needs. And this film, at least in some small part, is about the hypocrisy of our lives in civilization, the small lives that the, the, the small lies that we tell to each other, the different facades and personae that we we put on. I mean, that's that's clearly a big part of Amir's character for sure. And Rob is someone who doesn't need that, sees through all of that, and disregards all of that. And it's, uh, uh, I think, a pretty big part of the the film. It's certainly a big part, I, I would say, of the script, but definitely also of the way that Nicolas Cage is portraying the character, where uh, Rob is more laconic at the, the beginning of the film when they first enter Portland, uh, becomes more loquacious as the film goes on, as he remembers how to be in civilization, to use those skills, but still is not changing his his values his values of you know living in a cabin with a pig and uh making uh mushroom tarts or or, or pizzas if you if you prefer Brandon. <laughs> but i think this also actually speaks back to your idea of of this as a sort of portal fantasy story in that there is actually a really clear physical divide between city and country or city and wilderness in this film, which is the the bridges uh, into Portland. There's something that Rob brings up, but then the visual language as well, these uh, collage or montage scenes of traveling always include the bridge. So it's clear when they're leaving the wilderness and entering the city. And in fact, something this film does is uh, delete suburbs. Uh, they don't seem to exist. There is only city and wilderness. It's actually, there's not even actually like countryside. There's no countryside. There's no uh, suburbs. It's just wilderness and city is the visual language of this. And, and one more thing as well, Brandon, going back just to this idea of portal fantasy is that uh, 
Amir's father has this great line where he tells Rob that Rob is in his world and actually has been for a long time. As soon as he started selling his truffles to Amir, Rob was in the world of Amir's father. So even in the dialogue, right, there is this bit about being in a different world and in particular being in a world without even recognizing that you're in that distinct world. Yeah, I, I think this movie really works on a number of levels. I think, you know, there's one more way I want to approach the movie, but I also feel like I need to take a moment to say that um, I think I might have gone through everything Nick Cage's character went through to get that pig back. That is a gorgeous animal. Uh, and uh, I thought it was just remarkably beautiful. I want a pig like that. Yeah, I think there's a non-zero chance that we will actually be getting one in our household. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful animals I've ever seen. I mean, as a production note, uh, they didn't have time or really money to pay for a fully trained pig. Uh, and Nick Cage was bitten four times by this pig that they only had for about four days of shooting. Um, and it was apparently not not the greatest situation, <laughs> working conditions. But my goodness, this pig is gorgeous. Well, the character needed to be covered in blood anyway, so... Right. I mean, that that's really going to lead us to what the third way I want to talk about this movie, which is um, about a man who won't shower or bathe. Uh, I'm joking, of course. <laughs> We're going to talk about this movie. Uh, take off our speculative fiction hats for a moment and think about it as a drama, primarily, that is about loss and grief. I found this movie to be especially satisfying on this front. This is really the foreground of what the movie is. What you and I have been talking about, I think, is maybe more what we're attuned to as uh, uh, the type of stories that we read a lot of what we cover on the network. But this movie is really a drama about loss and grief. Every single character, uh, the three primary protagonists and antagonists to this movie, all are dealing with loss in a particular way. And they all, I think, experience a resolution to that loss in some way. And so it's a, a very focused movie in that way, in my opinion. And it's not even our main characters. Every, I think, speaking character has this mini arc in some way. Um, so I guess I don't really have a big question here. I would just wonder if you felt that this movie was really satisfying as a bit of cathartic storytelling. Oh yeah, it absolutely was. I think you're right that every character with lines goes through some kind of uh, emotional arc here. It might not be every character. It, it's possible that the person who works at the diner, uh, we, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of right. that. Right, the waitress that doesn't have that. She's there to pour <laughs> right. coffee, yeah. Yeah, that is true. And, and and we might also have to excuse the person who works at the, the crematorium from this list as well. But the restaurant people that we encounter seem to have some kind of arc. Even, even Edgar has some kind of arc here about dealing with, with loss, dealing with grief, or dealing with change at the very least. And so I certainly found it very satisfying there to see the theme kind of mirrored and magnified in each of these characters. There's just a lot of footage of, of middle-aged men crying as well, which I think is something that our society needs more of. And so on that front, I think this is a really important film, and I appreciated it on on that level as well. It, that really struck me too. I was watching it with my wife Rachel, and she might have been reading about it, but 
she told me at least that um, before she read any articles or reviews of the movie, uh, which I which I haven't done, <laughs> um, uh, she said it felt like an Odyssey movie, and I think to her that meant you know this character was going on a quest. We didn't run into any Cyclops, which is always you know how you know you're in an Odyssey movie, <laughs> uh, at least if you're in a Coen Brothers Odyssey movie. Um, but I, I you know I think she fell intuitively not only with these references to greek mythology but also that this character was on this journey to really come home in some sense and that meant resolving his feelings of grief and loss like you can't replace a wife with a pig uh and and that's really the lesson that this character had to learn i think that kind of sense that that might be the case is even underlined in some of the dialogue between Rob and Amir throughout the movie. And Rob needs to overcome this sense of grief and return home to really deal with his life and the choices he's made and move forward. But to me, when she said that, all I could think of was what you just said, Glenn. This is a movie that has a lot of middle-aged dudes crying in it, which is about 40% of the Odyssey. It's also a movie about hospitality and thresholds and homemaking, um, which is the other 60% of the Odyssey. And so I really felt, too, that this movie, though it's a quest movie for Rob, um, it's a movie about him needing to weep. And I really loved that. I'm like, ever since I read, reread the Odyssey, I guess a year ago, I've been trying to cry more, like consciously, <laughs> like to feel things more deeply, to be more engaged with the world, with hospitality and things like that. And I think this movie was also dealing with those themes of what we need, uh, not only in terms of materials to survive, which the last shot of the movie is about, um, but what we need emotionally to be enriched in our lives. Yeah, Homer gives us, this is simplistic, uh, Homer gives us two models of heroes. One in the Iliad, which is about Achilles, who essentially throws a temper tantrum because somebody took his stuff. And because he's throwing a temper tantrum, uh, lots of people have to die. That's one model of heroism right. that we get from Homer. And the other one is a, a man who dearly misses his wife and, and son and cries a lot about it and endures hardships in order to get back to them. Uh, also, he gets a lot of people killed so he can get back to them. There's there's always a lot of people getting killed in, <laughs> right, in Homer. Right. But those are the two models that we get. And I think that so much of our pop culture has been lately anyway, preferring Achilles to Odysseus. And I find that disturbing and problematic. And so I was really glad to have have this model of, of heroism, the Odyssean model of heroism on display here. And I'm, I'm glad you made the, the joke about, oh, brother, where art thou? Because, uh, well, I was going to try to make that joke at some point here on the episode, <laughs> because I, I did hear about John Wick before you said it on this episode, Brandon, but it was only earlier this morning when I was reading a review of the film. Otherwise, I had never heard of John Wick or knew anything about it. And to me, this actually felt like a Coen Brothers film, except with less slapstick. Uh, and and possibly, you know, naming restaurants Eurydice and Hestia perhaps have something to do with that. And it very much feeling like the Odyssey, but just the the quirky characters, the the bizarreness of the, the world as well, the kind of fantasticalness of the world as something maybe akin to magical realism in some way felt to me like a more serious Coen Brothers film 
So I'm I'm glad Rachel and I are on the same page about that. Yeah, you guys you guys have a lot in common. Uh, I think temperamentally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, also think 6 p.m. is past our bedtime. <laughs> <Right. and> <laughs> <laughs> Well, those were the main things that I had to think about this movie as a story. But now we have to think about the film as a motion picture. Right. Well, one of the things that I was, I was trying to say here about uh, so, many, <laughs> so many minutes of middle-aged men crying is that the actors are, I think, nailing it in this film. And so one of the, the ways that the, the arc about loss and grief and, and redemption on, on some level really works for me is that these actors are nailing the performances. They, I, I feel with them and I'm invested in the stories of these characters in, in part because of the performances, that they're so convincing and so uh, real and, and grounded for me. And I, I loved all three of the, the, the principal actors here. And I was surprised by that because I'm not sure I have ever liked a Nicolas Cage movie before or like <laughs> Nicolas Cage in a movie before. I love Nicolas Cage. And and that all, all you've just said to me is that you haven't seen adaptation. Uh, that that's, uh, that's all, that's what I heard. That's such a great performance by him. He plays two roles, um, brothers, one who's a serious screenwriter trying to adapt, uh, this book that seems unadaptable called the orchid thief, uh, by Susan Orleans. It's a real book. And then the other character he plays is his brother, who's trying to write a pop action movie and taking screenwriting classes and doing all the cheap screenwriting tricks. And it's, it's a great movie. I really recommend it. Uh, no, I, I have not seen it. I had not heard of it. I, I, I've seen Face Off. That's what I'm trying to say. I've seen oh, Face see, Off. I also, I love Face Off, though I haven't seen it in a really long time. So I don't know how I feel about it now. I'm a, Nic I'm a Nicolas Cage fan, um, especially when he's really on and like I said at the top of the show, this was one of his favorite performances that he's given. He's so good in this movie. He's able to do so much with so little. And I think all the characters are, particularly Alan, particularly Adam Arkin, um, who's a pretty good actor. I like his dad a lot more than I like him. Um, but I thought his performance, he's really only in three scenes, but he's able to communicate so much through those scenes and that, that scene where he realizes what he's eating with the wine, the sense memory coming on him. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a short scene. There's so much he communicates in it though. And I, and I found his performance to be really good. And I thought Amir was convincing in every persona he had to put on throughout the movie as well. Uh, I, I'm just saying, I agree with you. It's just the performances were pristine. Yeah, I loved Adam Arkin as well. I actually I don't know that I have seen him in anything else other than this film and then uh, his appearance on The West Wing as a, a therapist, uh, I think early in, in season two or season three of The West Wing, which is not something I've actually seen in at least 10 years, but immediately recognized <laughs> this actor, immediately recognized Adam Arkin uh, here. He just has such gravitas and and fits so perfectly here actually in this role of a kind of bond villain actually in this in this film this sort of weird villain with a weird sinister plan that doesn't really make any sense if this were really taking place in the real world but doesn't have to make sense because the point is he just oozes menace and is clearly the bad guy and it's he's so good at it and i also really felt for him uh when he actually breaks 
down. It was it was excellent. So yeah, I, I know I'm just repeating myself here about how great these uh, these actors were, but it did really really work for me. But I, I guess Brandon, we've also talked already quite a bit about the cinematography, at least in context of Doors. Uh, but I do think there's more going on here in the cinematography than than just Doors. <laughs> There really is. The lighting of this movie is spectacular. And that, you know, always speaks to the cinematographer's job is to capture light and darkness. That's what they do if they're not shooting on a green screen. And so you see, especially to me, the forest was shot so beautifully. I mean, the movie opens with this just shot of black swirling water. Um, and then you sort of kind of get some more color grading come coming in. The shots of the river were beautiful, but the shots early on of Nick Cage and that pig uh, walking through almost a horizontal landscape with the fog in the background and the lighting and the trees, the light coming through the trees, absolutely gorgeous shot. The interiors were shot uh, and lit really well too. Um, the only, I don't know, I guess location that didn't work for me was the was the Hotel Portland. And I don't feel like that shot was established super well because we had just come through the tunnel in these other locations. And I thought the set dressing was really good, but I didn't get the sense of early grandeur that I think the film was trying to communicate. And very quietly, as you pointed out, with the the elements of the story, or at least the elements of Rob's character, as well as this sort of uh, you know wild man who you know lives out in the the wilderness, I think very quietly the cinematography, even in the city, actually is is quite focused on nature, in particular trees. We have this this beautiful tree in front of the house of Amir's father, but then even just shots on the the outside outside of, of of buildings like the crematorium for example or out on the street in front of uh, the house we get lots of shots of of trees we see uh, mount hood in the background on what just is an absolutely beautiful image i don't know how how hard they had to work to get that that shot to line up with the the beautiful autumn trees and Mount Hood just kind of jutting over the clouds. It was just absolutely stunning. Uh, there's quite a bit with flowers going on as well. So there's a lot of nature imagery quietly in these scenes, even that are in the city, where it, it in some ways almost feels like we didn't actually leave the, the wilderness, which which might even be borne out in the text a little bit too. Absolutely. And, and there's this sense then that goes along with the emphasis on nature. I mean, which is really what that persimmon tree scene is about, that this the kid asks if the tree died. It could have just as easily been cut down uh, by people who wanted to do something else with the yard. But we get this sense of uh, the there's always the threat of nature taking back the city, which is what the apocalyptic speech is about too. And so this film uh, really is looking at not only the way we've just really destroyed nature to build these cities, but the constant encroachment of nature back to take back what we took from it. Yes. And this is what's going on with the menu at Eurydice as well. Uh, Eurydice is 
Eurydice is this uh, posh restaurant that only serves local and regional food. And so and so the meal even that they're served actually has like a pine cone from a Douglas fir tree in it and then has the the smoke from that in this in this uh, serving dish that you brought up earlier, Brandon. And so that's another place where we where we see that here as kind of a motif, people being in nature. But the way that this is presented in Eurydice is people kind of pretending to be attuned to nature or a part of nature in a way where clearly they are not. And this really, I think, does contrast with the apocalyptic speech that uh, I said earlier, we might just read into the microphone. So I think I'm going to here, Brandon, <laughs> just to, just so to make good on that promise. And because uh, I think it's I think it's worth it here. It's really quite excellent. And, and actually, I think also, although as we're recording this, we have not actually finished peace, feels a little bit like some of the apocalyptic imagery that we get in peace as well. We don't have to care. People first came out here 10,000 years ago. We would have been under 400 feet of water. Every 200 years, we get an earthquake right along the coast. One's coming up. When the shockwave hits, most of the city will flatten. Every bridge will fall into the Willamette. So there's nowhere to go, even if we could. Anyone who survives that's just waiting. Five minutes later, they'll look up and they'll see a wave 10 stories high. And then all this, everyone... It's all going to be at the bottom of the ocean again. So yeah, there's this, there is this real sense of our existence as humans, as fleeting, not just as individuals, but even as a species, that civilization is this artificial thing that we've imprinted on top of the natural world. But really, the natural world is the world, right? It's, we're, in, we're in that world. You know, we, we just get to play in it. What's really great also about this uh, bit of dialogue in particular is that this is taking place in the middle, about halfway through the movie, when we are seeing what Robin has just gone through, which is to get beat up for a little scrap of information to find his pig. And he's telling this kid who's in desperate need of uh, mentorship that he doesn't have to care. And it's a bit of underhand, it's an underhanded way to get Amir to think about why he even cares the things he thinks about. Because the speech isn't about learning to not care. The speech is about learning to care about the right things. And it's so gorgeously written and performed and so clearly communicated. It's so it's one of two just brilliant monologues. The second one is in the restaurant, which I don't think we'll read. Uh, that one's worth just that scene is worth the whole movie to me. It's so beautifully done um, where Nick Cage is just really confronting people about themselves. Well, I think this apocalyptic speech as well is really central to Rob's own arc because it, it begins with this line, we don't have to care, is telling Amir that you, you, know, you can shut off your feelings. You don't have to care about these tragic things that have happened to you. You can, you can shut it off, which seems to be what Rob has done in the aftermath of Laurie's death, that he just tried to escape his own feelings and clearly has not actually confronted his own feelings, confronted his own 
caring. He he decided to stop having feelings. He became a I don't know a Vulcan monk or something, you know, here in order to try to escape having emotions. B- Buddhist is the term the film uses, but <laughs> sure, sure. I just I'm trying to say he's he's trying to be Spock. That's uh, that's right, always right. my that's no, my exactly. go to reference. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he comes around at the end, right, and realizes, yeah, I should actually probably confront my feelings and and have a good cry about the tragic death of my my wife and how that made it impossible for me to to go on and uh, and he does confront that in the end and so in addition to Amir being the audience for this speech it's clear that Rob needs to be the audience for this speech as well and that like I think almost every line actually in this film is a double entendre that has a different meaning the first time you're watching the film than it does the second time you're watching the film, which I think is another way that this dovetails with a Gene Wolfe book. Yeah, absolutely. There. Well, while we're on the topic, I mean, we're 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 uh, still circling around uh, the way this movie is is made as a movie, even though obviously that's always going to lead to stories. Is you know what the filmmaker is trying to get us to see doesn't just rely on uh you know performance and dialogue and script but also on the shots they're making there's one shot at the end of the movie when Amir and Rob have their final farewell i suppose in the diner parking lot where the style of the filmmaking changed uh, most of the film at least as i recall was shot in really stable shots in you know medium close-ups though there are some beautiful long shot long distance shots in in the forest in the beginning but really the camera is almost always stable and then at the end when they're in the parking lot and saying goodbye it changes to the more dramatic handheld style of shot um, then I first of all, I'm wondering if this stood out to you at all. Um, but then if it didn't, now that I bring it up, what that was trying to communicate to you, because I'm I'm not quite sure. And this is not a complaint. Um, I'm just unsure of why, maybe even if you noticed this, but if this shot, if you thought about why this choice was made to kind of change the style of the filmmaking in this moment. Well, I did notice this actually, but my thinking at the time was that this was a a decision that wasn't made for artistry. It was it was made uh, it was a technical decision that they, out in this parking lot they couldn't set up the Steadicam. Uh, that was sort of my thought, but I think that's probably a kind of a cop out actually to see this as, as, as evidence of the technical aspects of having of, of like actually being there and making the film. But but to think about it from a storytelling perspective, you know, why why that one scene? Because we don't continue in that, right? I think that it might have made more sense to me if we then did the the rest of the coda, the rest of the epilogue in that in that style, but we don't. But it is also perhaps the most casual moment actually in the entire story where suddenly now it's just two dudes talking about how they're going to see each other again on Thursday and, you know, slapping hands and, you know, the, 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 and the handheld film maybe goes better with that. That, that was my sense too, at least of why the choice was made. I think technically you could, you could be right that we did get shots, uh, um, in that diner and around that diner, you know, uh, in the first third of the movie, that's where Robin goes to call Amir to get him picked up, uh, so that they can start their adventure together. Uh, but I think you're right. I think it's, it's meant to, um, emphasize a certain kind of realism of the moment, a return to reality and to just bring us into the, 
maybe subjectivity of both of these characters, or really maybe Amir's subjectivity, because that scene ends really with Amir. It's our farewell to him as he realizes um, he's going to spend the night in his car in that parking lot and really think about just what the hell happened to him over the past day or two. Well, this film has a real, I think, distinct feeling to it. The cinematography really lends itself to that. I think the gorgeous locations where everything is happening here, the sets as well. I think the actors, their performances also have a real special feel for this. I mean, Nicolas Cage is speaking so slowly as he's almost like having to remember (laughs) how to talk again. And so this movie feels unique, right? This is the sort of movie that I think I could see a 30-second clip of 20 years from now, and I would be able to identify you know, what film it was from because of that. But I think the music also has a lot to do with this as well. There's a, the, the, a lot of different types of music operating in this film. One of them is the original film score by composers Alexis Grapsis and, and Philip Klein. I really enjoyed this, this score. How did you feel about it, Brandon? How did it work for you? Yeah, to me, the film score did its job, which is I uh, to say I barely noticed it. It was really unintrusive. And I knew you were going to want me to think about the score, and I tried to catch it at times, and I almost never could. So that means it was doing its job, right? I noticed it really for a few moments uh, where especially when the film relied on on montage in particular. And we've talked about this a little bit, but when Rob and Amir are driving to the city of Portland and they go through this tunnel and cross the bridges and we get these beautiful shots of uh, the autumn woods, I re- it really stood out to me. But other than that, I, I can't really help but to th- feel as though the score did an amazing job of underlying the emotional content of the scenes because I didn't notice it but I was so immersed in the performances, the dialogue and stuff like that. Uh, but I like I like the kind of jangly guitars that showed up at, at different times and the diegetic music of the little steel drum. That All of that really worked for me. Yeah, their score their score is fairly minimalist. It's it's low instrumentation. It's not, you know, big sweep, sweeping orchestral music a la John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or something like that. It really is fairly minimalist. It is there meant to underscore literally the emotions of the scenes. And so yeah, like you Brandon, I only really noticed that music, their music in these transitional moments when we're in the car. And I did find it really compelling. I mean, it just, it told me how I was supposed to be feeling in this scene or told me how the characters are feeling in this scene and let me empathize with them. So 100% did its job in a really, really marvelous, really beautiful way. But there is a lot of other music in this film. Uh, I joked earlier about Amir taking this music education class. And so we hear a lot of classical music while he's driving or also in his uh, his high-rise apartment in Portland. And all of this is actually, I think, quite interesting in that two of the the recognizable pieces here that really stand out, I didn't keep track of every piece of classical music that appears in the film. But one of them is a a segment of Mozart's Requiem, right? So it's a mass for the dead. And 
Well, that's kind of what this film is, right? <laughs> the other piece, or another piece that really jumps out is uh, by Sanson. It's a very famous piece, uh, Dance Macabre. People, uh, well, it's it's in the best episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or the, the second best episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, maybe. The episode Hush, that might be a place where people know this. But uh, again, this is about death. This is a piece of music about death. Uh, and then we also get the very famous flower duet from Lachme, which... Um, well, you can guess what that's about. Uh, it's it's death. It's about death, right? So even this this music, uh, this this diegetic music that's actually being listened to by a character in the film, that is supposed to be on these uh, these tapes where he's learning about classical music, so he can have this sophisticated persona when he's dealing with fancy restaurants. All of the music that he's listening to is about death, and I really appreciated that. We also get Verdi's uh, requiem, the DSRA from his requiem, which is the one that. I that really stood out to me. I'm wondering, like, why is this guy talking about love of classical music and playing like one of the most intense classical pieces ever made? That's a part of Verdi's Requiem, which is, you know, the 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 death mass, as you pointed out. So, yeah, this movie has requiems and songs about death or, you know, spooky skeletons all, all over it. <laughs> and uh, it's it's wonderful. It's all it's really great. Uh, those all worked for me. Those classical pieces I thought were perfect. Um what didn't work for me? This is this is where I am going to complain about the movie. My sole complaint: the needle drops really didn't work for me. Uh, and there are two in the movie. The first one is at the uh, hotel Portland, leading up to Robin, us kind of learning who he is, and then him getting beat up. Uh, that is, I only have eyes for you. To me, that was just the wrong choice. I get the maybe idea behind it, or maybe I don't, which is, you know, that's kind of Tarantino-esque pastiche of, uh, and com you know, combination of the pop song during the fight scene. I think what this song was for was to try to indicate the time period in which this hotel was full of luster and a luxurious spot to be, but it, to me, it just didn't work with the rhythm of the editing and the choice of song just really didn't work. I also really struggled with the choice uh, to play I'm on fire at the end of the movie. Um, the woman who sang the cover, Glenn, as you pointed out, also voiced Rob's wife. I didn't get that. It took me reading about the movie to realize that um, it was her singing the cover and not the wife making like a mixtape with this cover of this song on it. That was my fault as a viewer. I just missed that. It, but it, it just, it didn't feel really deeply established to me. And then also she says that, you know, this song really reminds me of you about Robin. Now I get a song about Robin, something that would remind Robin's wife of Robin being about his deep passion but not about laying in bed, having erotic dreams about a girl you just met. And so to me, this, it was a beautiful cover, but it was the wrong song to end the movie on. Um, but like I said, this is literally like my only critique of the movie. The needle drops didn't work for me. Oh yeah. And I, I couldn't disagree more. I, these both worked so well for me. I mean, for one thing, <laughs> just on their own, these are beautiful songs. I only have eyes for you by the flamingos. One of the greatest love songs ever written. I'm on fire, probably a tier below that, but 
but still a really, really great song. And I liked this cover of it a lot. And yeah, I'll defend I'm on Fire first. I mean, one of the things that this song is doing here for the film is that it's it's capturing a moment from their relationship that is not six months before Lori dies. We don't even know what Lori dies from, how she died. Maybe it was an accident, uh, might have been uh, an an illness of some sort. We we actually do not know. But whatever that is, this is not something that's being, this is not a moment that is from late in their marriage, just before she dies. This is from probably even before they're married. And it's from before he has become Chef Feld. It's when he's still in like cooking school or is just the you know guy making the pasta at some other restaurant. And it's from just before they're about to go on a date to celebrate his birthday, where they're going to go to a restaurant they can't really afford to go to. And she says, all he's going to do is complain about the food. And to me, then this song about, well, it's about young people really wanting to have sex, right? And not being <laughs> able to, to control to control that. It's about the obsession with someone that you you just met right this intense feeling this feeling of being on fire and to me it really worked that this tape that he cannot play isn't from the moments leading up to her death or the months or the years leading up to her death but is from the beginning of the relationship and that that's what he can't go back to that that's what's so hard for him i this really really worked for me i'm starting to cry just thinking about it again right now so i, I loved this choice uh, I accept your defense of it. Uh, I did think about it in that light. I don't know. Something about it just still doesn't quite work for me. But I think your defense of it is beautiful. So I will uh, I will let it stand. I will rescind my reading of this, <laughs> of this final song. <laughs> well, we can uh, we can always take a take a vote. <laughs> also, not everything has to work for everybody. That's, uh, yeah, that's the rules right. of art. <laughs> Well, let's talk about a few more things before we leave this episode behind, Brandon. I'm going to circle us back, actually, to a few things that we've talked about already, because I took a look at some reviews of this film. This was actually prompted by Elizabeth, who, as I said earlier, I had to stop the movie and go to bed. And uh, Elizabeth was very concerned about the fate of the pig and needed to look up to know what was going to happen to the pig, I think, in order to continue watching the movie uh, with me the next night. And so uh, she actually did not ever find that out, but did read a review of the film that she uh, thought was interesting and that we got to talk about. And I do want to talk about that review, but I actually want to start with a negative review. And this is actually how I encountered the existence of John Wickbrand. And this is a negative review written by Gary Kramer at Salon.com, who labels the film a revenge thriller, and then writes this line. He writes, Rob is righteous when he needs to be humble and too hell-bent on serving revenge, hot or cold, to warrant any real sympathy. And this is the context in which John Wick is invoked in this review, because I guess that also is a revenge thriller, which is a genre of film that I did not know existed. And I, I, I guess I just... I wonder, Brandon, would you describe this as a film about revenge? Uh, not in the least. I So here's the deal. I really wondered, because of how the plot of this film echoes John Wick, I really wondered how the audience would have responded to this movie, uh, an audience that's not me. Because there's a scene in the movie that I, that felt 
uh, put in there, it specifically used a, a trick of screenwriting called Save the Cat, where it made me wonder if when this movie was shown to test audience or if it was, if they felt that Nicolas Cage's character was deeply unsympathetic. And the scene is when uh, Robin and Amir, Robin is speaking with the baker and he takes an extra pastry and gives it to Amir. And it's a very, it's like, if you know to look for this trick of screenwriting, when um, the screenwriter or the filmmaker is trying to really make the character more sympathetic to the audience, the trick is to have them do something nice for another character in the movie. And you only need to like do it once, but it just builds a lot of sympathy immediately for that character. And it's a trick called Save the Cat. It's like a, a book called this. It's a screenwriting book. And so I saw this in the movie when we're three quarters of the way to the end of the movie, they're on their final mission. They're going to do this beautiful dinner. That scene of them cooking to dinner cooking dinner together is enough to show us that Rob is, you know, training the next, you know, wizard, essentially teaching this kid about what he's capable of. Um, that I, that I felt that this must have been put in the movie because a certain number of viewers found the character of Rob too unsympathetic at this point in the movie to have the ending really hit. And the only reason why I thought that might have been the case is because they got confused about the setup for the movie and were waiting for some kind of John Wick gunkata to take place. And to me, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, that's the that's the theme of the the next review that I'll talk about. But I I, I don't think that that's why that scene is there. I will say because I think that if you're going to put that scene in, you don't put it in halfway through Act Three. You you need to put a scene like that earlier in the film if what you're trying to do is get the audience to feel sympathy for the the Rob character. So I, I don't think that's what that's about. I, I think actually this works perfectly with his arc. I don't think that he would have actually done that earlier in the film. I don't think he would have done that in the first act or the second act for that matter that he does it now because he's he's significantly through his own healing journey at this at this point. This is also a scene in which he gets a hug from the 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 baker he left Hestia to. I think it's important that they are actually in Hestia when this scene happens. There's this bit about the curtains and this this hug that he does not return. This is I think the moment then when he is really, I think, fully back in the world. And in fact, this actually really reminded me of another bit of Homer. This is actually uh, a bit in the Iliad. It's actually uh, from a speech that Achilles's mother, uh, Thetis, makes to him when he is sulking in his tent, deep, deep into his tantrum. I think this is in, oh, this might be book nine of the Iliad, I think. When she tells him that uh, essentially he needs a hug, and uh, that's really what I felt that this scene was about too. So I, I don't think it was shoehorned in there. I don't think this was a save the cat bit. It, yeah, I. Uh, you could be right. I still think it is because um, uh, up until this point, Rob is still uh, seemingly blaming Amir for the loss of his pig. And, and I think you're a hundred percent right that this whole bit of the movie is about him letting go of that anger and getting into the final place where he's doing something healing, showing companionship, showing care for other people, uh, basically, 
doing what Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon calls the art of fighting without fighting, um, <laughs> which is to say he's taking a totally different route. I mean, in, in Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee's getting up to mischief, but this is not mischief. This is care. And, uh, you know, Hestia, goddess of the threshold, right? Goddess of the home or the hearth here, really a moment about bringing people together at home. And so that's the route that he takes. So there's no way that that can really be revenge. This is about reintroducing harmony and balance to these people's lives. Yeah. So I, I also do not think this is a film about revenge and would, would never have thought even to talk about this as a revenge film of any kind, let alone a thriller, which it certainly is not a thriller, I think, by any definition here. So uh, I couldn't disagree with Gary Kramer more, but I thought it was interesting and worthwhile taking a look at a, a negative review. But let's return to the positive review that sent me looking at reviews to begin with, which is by Matt Zoller Seitz at RogerEbert.com. This is the one that Elizabeth read. This also invokes John Wick. Uh, here, Seitz says that he saw the movie with a friend who checked out of the film partway through, I think fairly early on, because she went to the movie thinking that it was a revenge action film, a la John Wick, and then it wasn't, and and so just checked out. But, but didn't check out because of not finding Rob sympathetic, but just because there weren't enough guns and loud engine noises, I, I guess. But, uh, but Seitz loved the film. He labeled it not quite magical realism, but expressionistic with its uh, loose relationship to reality, uh, you know, invoking this restaurateur fight club is the most obvious example of that. And I, I liked this idea of of thinking of of this as, well, it is not quite magical realism. We were talking about it in terms of portal fantasy, but I think ex expressionistic actually might be the best way to describe this film's relationship with reality. I, I think that's really fair. I don't really have much to say about that because when I hear expressionistic, my brain locks into German expressionism, which is wrong. Um, and so you've caught me off guard and I don't have the vocabulary to respond to that because I'm in the wrong paradigm in the moment. But I, I think it's totally fair. I might have used impressionistic uh, rather than expressionistic. Um just because that's how it feels to me. The lighting of this movie is such a feature of it. And it's it's so it's so important in what it highlights and hides. Um, the way the doors are used constantly to emphasize inside, outside, and the emotions. To me, that's all about the subjectivity of the characters, which is more impressionistic. But I like the rest of the review that that you read and I and I agree with it. Yeah, I, I think I, I would definitely say expressionism rather than impressionism. But here we are thinking about, you know, it's about painters, right? So people like Van Gogh, uh, Kandinsky, who are, uh, well, the, the, those are people with posters decorating my my home, whereas we don't actually have any impressionistic posters <laughs> in, our, in our home, any impressionism posters in our home. But expressionism is about distorting reality, right? Show, you know, painting a scene as it feels uh, rather than as it looks where I think impressionism is is looking less about the interiority of ourselves and looking more at the beauty of the scene itself. Impressionism is more about playing with light and so on, which you're invoking when you're talking about the, the cinematography here. But I do think that the weirdness of the world that the story inhabits is, is there in order to evoke the emotional lives of the, the characters. So I would say expressionism is probably spot on there. 
Uh, my my core problem right now, as I said, is a paradigm issue. I recently watched Joe versus the Volcano, which is uh, ex- explicitly expressionist movie. <laughs> And so I'm kind of like stuck, uh, and this is my fault and, and bad radio too. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> someday we'll do an episode on Joe versus the volcano, which actually I think would be fun. But uh, yeah, I think perhaps uh, it is time for us just to offer up some some final thoughts. And I'll uh, I don't think that I'm I'm going out on a limb here, Brandon, to say that. Uh, my final thoughts about this film are that it was really great. I'm glad to have watched it. Would not have watched it if if, I, if not for the impetus here of this episode commission. But my life has been better for having seen this film, and I'm really grateful for that. I, I really loved it, too. I'm really grateful for the commission because I think it would have taken me five to ten years to see it. Or it would have been on like the new releases shelf at the library, and I would have nabbed it and not watched it and then returned it without having seen it, which is, I guess, how I watch movies that I rent now from the, or borrow from the library. <laughs> um, I'm so glad to have seen this. Like I said, and, and I think it's clear uh, through our discussion of it, the way this movie looks at um, adulthood, about masculinity, about the need for emotional engagement, um, and just the beauty of it, the, the visual beauty of it, is something I'm so grateful to have seen this week. It's it's a movie I needed to watch this week, I think, is I've been, uh, I think we say every week we're in the middle of a lot of transitions, but um, that <laughs> seems to have been the case for this past year and a half. And this week I was in the middle of more transitions, and this was a really excellent film to sit down and watch for me at this time. So uh, I highly recommend it. I don't know if it's become one of my favorite movies, but anytime I bring it up, I'm going to speak highly of it and recommend that, that viewers watch it and listeners watch it. Yeah, it's not a it's not a feel good movie. I don't think, right? It's not a popcorn movie, but it is a movie that I found cathartic and and will be one that I will return to from time to time. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have have watched it. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I'm Brandon Buddha, and I just want to take another moment here at the end of the show to thank uh, the supporter of our podcast to or the commissioner of this episode to get this to us what a treat uh, we are loving these film commissions and um this one was a standout i think uh, in 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 what we've covered so far uh, before we go, we'll just let listeners know that, uh, as always, you can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com, as well as you can find ways to come talk with us about this movie there. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>